This podcast does not provide medical advice. Please listen to the complete disclosure at the end of the recording. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyone Dies, the podcast where we talk about serious illness, dying, death, and bereavement. I'm Marianne Matso, a nurse practitioner, and I'm going to use my experience from working as a nurse for 44 years to help answer your questions about what happens at the end of life. I'm Charlie Navarrete, an actor in New York City, and I ask the questions you may have if you have never died before. We are both here because we believe that the more you know in advance, the better prepared you will be to make difficult decisions. So please relax, get yourself a glass of wine and some cheese, and thank you for spending the next hour with Charlie and me as we talk about keeping things that bring us pleasure until the end of life. In the first half, we have our recipe of the week and a return to a classic essay by Irma Bomback. In the second half, Charlie takes us to France for a report about maintaining normalcy, pleasure, and dignity at the end of life. In our third half, we welcome back Claire Lucky, known as the grieving bitch on Instagram, whose husband, Matt Lucky, died a year ago on Father's Day, and we'll be talking about his death following a glioblastoma diagnosis. Charlie, have you seen the... um? Show only murders in the building. Oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Isn't it wonderful? Yes. So Martin Short in Only Murders in the Building loves dip. Mm -hmm. In fact, all he eats is dip. Yes. To quote his character Oliver, um, Oliver says, I haven't had an actual entree for years. Granted, I've lost 14 pounds and a ton of hair, but totally worth it. So short, um, Steve Martin, Selena Gomez, star in the Hulu comedy about homicide podcasts and the peculiarities of life in the New York luxury pre-war building. And start, of course, a true crime podcast about a murder in their building. So this week, we offer loaded baked potato dip, like eating twice-baked potatoes, only different. Pair with a nice white wine and a glass bottle and stemware, and you will be living large. Take this dip to your next funeral lunch, and you'll be having people line up for your recipe. And, you know, I made it this week, Charlie, and it really is good. And I had mm-hmm. some, like, leftover potatoes that yeah. David had made. Yeah. So I took some of the leftover dip, warmed up the potatoes, and then put this on, put the dip on top of it. Let me tell you. I have a new way of making twice-baked potatoes without all the work. You just take your baked potatoes, make this dip, put it over the top of it. Mm-mm-mm. Trust <laughs> me on this one. It's good. It but matter. enough about yeah. me and potatoes. Um, <laughs> Irma Bomback was a New York Times columnist who died in 1996 from cancer. Did you ever read Irma Bomback? Yes. Actually, I, I I I ran into her at uh, was it Disney World or Disneyland? It was Disney. It was Disney World. It was in California. Yes, I was I was there. Uh, um, yeah, we were having lunch, and I looked, and uh, and I I said, "Isn't that Irma Bombeck?" And sure enough, it was Irma Bombeck. Yes. Did you go talk to her? No. No. Oh. That was nice of you, but still, I would have loved to have met her. So, for our younger listeners, mm-hmm. um, you should Google Irma Bombeck because a lot of what she had to say is still very a- applicable. And, you know, some of it's dated, yes, but, you know, you can get around the dating of it. And 
get her gist. So um, this essay I'm going to read to you was an essay she wrote just after being diagnosed with cancer. And you might have heard it before, but I'm going to read it to you. And it's called, If I Had My Life to Live Over. And these are her words. Someone asked me the other day, if I had my life to live over, would I change anything? My answer was no. But then I thought about it, and I changed my mind. If I had my life to live over again, I would have waxed less and listened more. Instead of wishing away nine months of pregnancy and complaining about the shadow over my feet, I'd have cherished every minute and realized that the wonderment growing inside me was to be my only chance in life to assist God in a miracle. I would never have insisted the car windows be rolled down on a summer day because my hair had just been teased and sprayed. I would have invited friends over to dinner, even if the carpet was stained and the sofa faded. I would have eaten popcorn in the good living room and worried less about the dirt when you lit the fireplace. I would have taken the time to listen to my grandfather ramble about his youth. I would have burnt the pink candle that was sculptured like a rose before it melted while being stored. I would have sat cross-legged on the lawn with my children and never worried about grass stains. I would have cried and laughed less while watching television and more while watching real life. I would have shared more of the responsibility carried by my husband, which I took for granted. I would have eaten less cottage cheese and more ice cream. I would have gone to bed when I was sick instead of pretending the earth would go into a holding pattern if I weren't there for a day. I would never have bought anything just because it was practical, wouldn't show soil, or guaranteed to last a lifetime. When my child kissed me impetuously, I never would have said later, now go get washed up for dinner. There would have been more I love you's, more I'm sorry's, more I'm listening's, and mostly given another shot at life, I would have seized every minute of it, look at it and really see it, try it on, live it, exhaust it, and never give that minute back until there was nothing left of it. So please go to our webpage for the recipe and additional resources for this program. We hope you'll follow us on Facebook and Instagram and remember to rate and review this podcast. We have a link in our show notes that makes rating our podcast really easy. That would be so helpful to us. We really kind of need your help with this, so I hope you'll, you'll pitch in. As a licensed nonprofit organization, we are dependent on your kindness and always appreciate your tax-deductible donations. If you find that this podcast to be of help to you, please go to our webpage to donate so that we can continue to provide quality shows about serious illness, dying, death, and bereavement at www.everyonedies.org. That's www.everyonedies.org. The number one, D-I-E-S, so, over to you, Charlie. Thanks, Mary Ed. You're welcome, Charles. In a palliative care unit, the care and treatment provided is aimed at optimizing the quality of life and not the quantity of life. Food and drink are adjusted to the person's condition and is primarily oriented towards pleasure, often called recreational eating. Simple pleasures can make for a happier ending.
It was Christmas at a hospice in France where a 50-year-old man with a neurodegenerative disease that left him unable to chew or swallow was being cared for. Food was delivered by tubes straight to his stomach. His doctor, Virginie Quastella, diluted a little red wine and dropped it on his tongue. Not enough for him to swallow, but enough to saturate his taste buds and light the pleasure centers of his brain. He said, again? And she gave him more. Dr. Guastella oversaw the palliative care unit at Clermont-Ferrand University Hospital. Chu, a public medical center in south-central France, surrounded by the wine regions of Bordeaux, Sancerre, and the Loire Valley. The center has possibly the world's only hospital-based wine bar, whose sole purpose is to bring contentment to patients in pain or at the end of their lives. In previous podcasts, I covered laughter and music as sensory pleasures at the end of life. Sensory pleasure is not limited, of course, to the end of life. The first sip of coffee in the morning is a sensory pleasure for many, as are clothes fresh out of the dryer, your pet, or an orgasm. Increasing evidence and findings in neuroscience documents that our sense of fulfillment including our will to live, is closely tied to the activation of this pleasure region. Wine can light up our gray matter in ways that fulfill us on many levels by allowing our senses to soak up a variety of flavors and aromas, connecting to other senses which create moments that give us comfort. The simple pleasure of a satisfying meal or alcohol for a person at the end of life may be dismissed by some, but Dr. Guastella prioritizes humanity. Years of study have led researchers in neuroscience, psychology, and palliative care to this conclusion. Simple pleasures can make for a happier ending. Dr. Guastella learned there was more to give patients beyond pain medication, such as care, time, conversation, even little treats. She says, in palliative care, there is always something to offer. Originally, the palliative care unit at CHU gave patients wine or champagne on special holidays in plastic bottles. Dr. Guastella felt plastic was undignified. It undermined the pleasure the drink was supposed to bestow. Why, because you are hospitalized, do the good things have to be stopped, she asks. Dr. Guastella was introduced to Kathleen Lergron Sebil, an anthropologist at Lille University of School of Medicine who was studying people's connection with wine, including at the end of life. Le Grand Sebille had conducted 200 interviews with doctors and other medical staff, non-medical caregivers, families, and patients about preserving sensory pleasure. Clinicians spoke about the importance of stopping medication that dulls the palate when it no longer provides a benefit to the person. People spoke about wanting the wines they had enjoyed all their lives. One student nurse felt it was an abuse of power to forbid older adults from drinking a glass simply because it's not done in a hospital setting. When Guastella became chief of the palliative care unit at CHU, the director of her division approved the idea of starting a wine bar for terminal patients. No stools, a bartender, and a storehouse of good bottles. Several vintners donated cases of wine. Since then, Patients have been offered wine from real bottles poured into real glasses. The purpose is not for patients to drink a lot. Rather, 
to help those advanced in years maintain a sense of normalcy and dignity. Researchers had also made key discoveries about the systems that regulate what neuroscientists refer to as our wants and our likes. Wants are our survival needs. Eating, drinking, sleeping, likes are the specific ways in which we satisfy those needs. Favorite foods, drinks, a certain pillow. In other words, what neuroscientists call wants are really our needs, and what they refer to as likes are what make us happy. For example, I want a beefy to martini. I would like it with two olives. Cheers. But why have likes at all? Why do we get so much satisfaction from a juicy peach or a glass of Pinot Noir when all we really need is to eat and drink to stay alive? Neuroscience doesn't have an answer to that, but there is a theory. Maybe it's because it serves to broaden the targets of our wants, says Kent Barrage, a psychologist and neuroscientist at the University of Michigan. Just as the basic survival need to want food leads to liking it, so can enjoyment cause survival instincts to kick in. A 2001 study by Barrage and Wyvel documented that wanting could be triggered by sensory cues. Most things that turn on liking will also turn on wanting, says Barrage. This phenomenon is why the smell of freshly baked bread can make us suddenly ravenage. A random like activates a primal need. This process is also apparent in what happens when pleasure is taken away. The connection between liking and wanting means that a small delight like wine can help people feel pleasure, which Guastella and her team have witnessed time and again. The phenomena has inspired them to add more sensory thrills over the years, like tastings of caviar and French pastries. Morton Kringlebach, a neuroscientist who runs the Center for Eudemia and Human Flourishing at Oxford University, sees the communal aspect of wine drinking as core to its benefit. The most important pleasure is that, is that of other people, he says. Wine can become meaningful because you share it. Four brothers inherited a vineyard from their father, who had survived a stroke that left him partly paralyzed, but still able to enjoy his daily glass of wine. Eventually, advancing Alzheimer's disrupted his abilities to swallow, and his doctor advised him to stop drinking. If I don't drink wine, why am I here, he asked his sons. He died a week later. The brothers don't believe that wine was specifically keeping their father alive, but they saw how taking it away diminished his sense of purpose. In a survey by Malaysian researchers, relatives of people in palliative care said that their contentment depended largely on their loved one's happiness in their final days. Relatives of people at Chu also speak about the senses of normalcy and intimacy they felt from just sitting by the hospital bedside, chatting over a glass of wine together. It's difficult to envision U.S. hospitals adding wine bars. Introducing any sort of alcohol would be fraught with attorneys telling us we probably shouldn't do it because somebody might fall, says Jason Neagle, assistant professor of palliative medicine at Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine. He occasionally suggests a brown bag libation, you know, on the down low. Professor Kringlebach states that deprivation has consequences, that it tends to increase our desire for the thing we are trying to eliminate, adding, having a little bit of chocolate is better than not having any at all. 
Sharing the joys of life with others is a meaningful way to be together. Pleasure can have a transformative effect, he says, if you will let yourself be open to it. He adds, the most important pleasure is that of other people. Wine be- can become meaningful because you share it. And as winemaker Antoine Laurent said when he came to Chew to drop off 15 cases, even if it's the end of life, you're still alive. So why not continue living? That was really a good piece. That gave me pleasure, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> I am happy to hear that. But but it's but it's true. I mean that I don't know if people are familiar with. Uh, are you familiar with the phrase "follow your bliss"? No, tell me. Um, basically, you do what well, you 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 and gardening. It's it's mm-hmm. just something in you that gives you pleasure. You can't define it, but it's something that it's it's for you. Um, it just. You know, it's it's a sensory pleasure, just handling you know the the dirt, the flowers, the seeds, and and all of that. It's it's that idea that it's just you know the example I put in about uh, you know taking uh, uh, clothes out of the dryer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just just nice warm clothes out of the dryer. I used to yeah, our yeah, our yeah. um our laundry was in our in our bathroom. Did I ever tell you this? And the girls would take their baths when they were little and I'd put the towels in the dryer so that when they got uh, out they had these warm towels around them. Oh, what a good one. And mom they you are. to this uh-huh. day that is like their idea of nurturing, you know. If okay. if they're over and I put the towel in the dryer while they're in the shower, it's like, oh, that's the best. But such a little thing, right? Yes, that's it. See, I think, you know, like I'm not a wine drinker or really a booze drinker much at all. But I think at the end of my life, I want them to have like a chocolate bar so that, Ah, you know, like I can have like different, you know? Yeah, different. Like we all have the thing that we like. Like whenever I go to a conference, they always have coffee. It's Mm -hmm. like... I'm not a coffee drinker. I get, you know, pleasure from a nice cold Diet Pepsi, you know? Like, right. what about me? But then they all, you always have pastries, so then it's like, well, at least they have pastries. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> they got to mix up for it. Yeah, there we are. Okay, good. Yes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You have your coffee. I'll have two pastries. <laughs> So thank you for that, Charlie. For our third half, we have Claire Lucky, who goes under the name Grieving Bitch on Instagram. And she's part of our Everyone Dies correspondent team. And we love her. Don't we, Charlie? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. At age 32 and only five months into her marriage, her husband did not recognize her when she arrived home from work one day. He was diagnosed with stage four glioblastoma brain cancer in February of 2020, and Claire was his caregiver until his death in June of 2021. To begin to cope with this loss and trauma, she channeled her sense of humor and inner bitch by creating the Grieving Bitch account on Instagram. So check her out. Um, Claire is sharing her grief journey and life challenges as a 34-year-old widow living in New York City with Everyone Dies in her regularly 
in her regular bi-monthly third half segment. So here's Claire. Welcome. Um, I'm Marianne Masto, and I'm with Claire Lucky, who, if you follow her, and I hope you do on Instagram, she's under the handle Greeting Bitch. Hi, Claire. Hi, Marianne. Hi, everybody. So we've been um, chatting about, you know, sort of different things that have occurred in your life since Matt died, and one of the things after somebody dies who's under hospice care is that hospice brings in all kinds of equipment, right? They bring in the bed, they bring in whatever piece of equipment is needed. And then typically after the death, you know, your nurse will call the home medical equipment company and say, you know, go pick all that stuff up. So is that what they did for you? Yeah, it's what they did for me. We had we had a number of different things. We had medical equipment that was provided by a hospice, and we also had some other medical equipment that we needed because Matt was disabled. So, and that happened before he he went into hospice. It was the nature of his disease that he lost the function of his left side. So we needed things like a shower stool, a walker, this just a couple of other accoutrements, if you will. So in my experience working at the hospice nurse, I've had people who like, you know, get this stuff out of my house immediately, and, you know, like right now. And then there's other people who are like, well, you know, you know, take some time. It's okay. They don't like, they don't mind seeing all that stuff around and they have a hard time, you know, like people who leave their spouses slippers next to the bed or clothes in the closet, that kind of thing. What was your experience with those few weeks after that stuff and the equipment? Well, Matt was a six-foot-tall athletic hockey player, and I think the worst thing that happened with his disease was the fact that he lost his body for him, and my reaction was he never wanted any of this equipment in the first place. He And we, we took such pride in, like, us, you know, sleeping in, in the same bed together. And it was only during hospice when that had to change. I, I had to have the maintenance staff in our building move our bed into storage. And we got the hospice bed in the bedroom because we live in a one-bedroom in New York City. So we just don't have a ton of space. And I was sleeping on a camping cot right next to him. So my response was, I'm not going to sleep in the hospice hospital bed. I'm not going to sleep on this camping cot. Like I, I'm just get, I'm getting all of this stuff out. So it, within a day or two, mm-hmm. I I called hospice and I said, you know, come pick up everything. I, you know, I I don't want it. And uh, they were doing that, and they were very 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 quick with it. And then I had to deal with the other equipment and immediately I got, you know, I, I, I got rid of the shower stool and then I was coming around and I was looking at the walker and the walker was Matt's first piece of medical equipment. And I immediately had a flashback mm-hmm. and the flashback was when he got a, a bad MRI in October and that was when his tumor doubled 
and he started to lose the ability to walk day by day. And it was the day before my birthday and he took a nap and I knew he was struggling to walk because he was gripping the walls and he was using things. And I, I was going to the medical supply store and I was calling one of my good friends that's a nurse and I was like, he's losing it. And it was such an emotional moment for me. And I said, what do I need to get him? And she said, you need a, sh- a shower stool, you need a commode, and you need a walker. Get those three things. So I get those three things, and I get back before he wakes up, and I put the walker next to his bed. And he he gets up out of bed, and he just starts using the walker. And it, that was such a, a loving memory, a, a bittersweet memory really but it was loving in the sense that he didn't have to ask for it it was there and as the disease progressed he did not want to use a wheelchair he really wanted to use the walker because he just it, he, he didn't want to he, he didn't want it he wanted as much freedom as possible and on his last day he was primarily using his walker and our home health aide was assisting him the whole time but he didn't want to be in a wheelchair so anyway, all this was flooding back to me as I was looking at the walker and I just thought, I'm not giving this up. This, this $35 medical, like cheap walker, it, which ended up being the right thing for him, uh, for many reasons that I, I won't get into at this point, but the, it was the symbol. It was the symbol that this, this walker was that what he clung to and I cannot bring myself to get rid of it. So I, I kept that. That was the only thing I kept. And I've been corresponding with an, a, a metal worker and we are going to make something out of it. And I think we've agreed on a structure that we're going to make it like a house. Like what I would want is for you to walk into my apartment and see some, this metal thing painted blue or I, I haven't decided on the color or what, what exact size, but I want you to walk in and say, Oh, that's a really cool thing. What is that? And I want to say to you, that's Matt's walker. And I'm going to keep that until I die. And so, tell me this, Claire. You said it it has a symbolism, but is it the symbolism that you were able to anticipate his name as take care of him in that way or what exactly if you if if I'm sure you thought about it but what is it what is it that walker it's that and his fight to continue to walk he he struggled with walking and staying mobile and if I was in his position I might have taken a wheelchair sooner but Matt wanted to walk and be as mobile as humanly possible. And I I saw that as him, as his spirit, as him fighting. I, I remember hearing that walker in the middle of the night and, he, and he's going into the kitchen to get cookies or this or that. And so I, I think it has a lot of things. It, it evokes a lot of memories because it, it was like the noise. Like I heard the noise mm-hmm. of the walker and I was like, oh, he's awake. Oh, I got it. I have to do this or I have to do that. Or, you know, he's up. And I, I, I think it's just a, 
such a, as I'm reflecting, it means so many things. I say he he had to have been a, a strong physically strong to be able to continue to walk. I don't know that most people with a glioblastoma and the surgery and stuff that he had would have been strong enough to do that. I I don't either, and I I actually remember something funny that he he said to me and our home health aide. He so so once he he got up and he walked over to the window just to look out the window, and then he looked back at me and our home health aide, and he was like, "Sometimes I get up just to make sure you're paying attention, and <laughs> and see and see if like." <laughs> Like, yeah, man, we're ignoring you. <laughs> yeah, and he also, I think he got a kick out of out of us, like, reacting to it, because sometimes, like, the home health aide would jump up, or I, I would perk up, and it, it, he just, he played the game a bit, and it was entertaining for him, so, you know, go, Matt, you do you. Right, right, right. So... How long did it take you, I mean, that's how long it took for the equipment, but how long did it take you to start to think about what to do with the clothes? I, well, living in a New York City apartment and not having a ton of space, I had shoved all of my stuff in nooks and crannies and I, and every, and in just my stuff was in disarray. So I finally had the opportunity to be like, okay, I can organize myself. And since he was gone, I thought I could get rid of, I was doing a little bit of a cleanse in the beginning. And I, I thought I could get rid of his work clothes. I can get rid of his winter clothes and uh, his shoes and there was luckily somebody who lives in my building that facilitates donation of clothes. So all I had to do was package everything mm-hmm. up and she picked it up. So that was great. So it was, it was really the impersonal nice. clothes. Yeah. Yeah. I got rid of that, uh, probably within three months, but the t-shirts, the sweatshirts and the hat, the things that smelled like him, the clothes he cared about, and the clothes mm-hmm. that would comfort me, I didn't touch that for 10 or 11 months. Did you find yourself and wearing those things? Yes. I was wearing some of it. So I was wearing some of it immediately, but there was a mess of it that I, I, I wanted to go through, A, to, to give mm-hmm. to some of his family, because I'm sure that it would comfort them, but it just wasn't, it was not going to be an easy task to make that, those choices. And it was on my mental to-do list for a while. And all of a sudden on on a Sunday night in April, so that was what, that was 10 months after I just threw on some music and said, I'm doing it. And I just started whipping things out and I didn't throw out anything I just took the clothes and the hats and the, and the sweatshirts that I wanted and I put them aside. And then the stuff that I, that didn't have meaning for me, I put in bags 
and then I, I will give those to his family for them to go through. And if they want anything, they can have it. And if they don't, I, I will donate it. But that I just going through all of it. I got to smell them again. The hats were great. And I honestly, I kept like 70, I'm keeping like 75% of it. I just, I love it all so much. I can't, you know, I can't, I can't part with it yet. And I don't think you need to, I don't think anybody needs to feel rushed in doing it. But if, you know, if it's something that somebody wants to do quickly, by all means. Hi, She moved her clothes. And you know what? Actually, there's one other one other thing that's interesting about Matt and why I wanted to donate some of his clothes was there's a story one of his coworkers told me that he was at a happy hour. And I think this girl got sick or, or something happened and she, or Matt took the shirt, the button down shirt he was wearing and he gave it to her. And I remember this night because he came home and he was just wearing this t-shirt and he was like, I can explain, I can explain. And he was like, I, I just, you know, this girl got sick at happy hour. I, I, yeah, I gave her my shirt. And, and I, you know, I believed him. I, and I, to this day, I believed him. I, like, I, I never had any doubt because he's, I, I, he, he is who he is, but he literally gave the shirt off of his back to somebody. And that's what makes me think that no matter what, I, I'm going to donate his clothes because of that story. And at Matt's funeral, that story was told that, so that story is going to be told for, Ever that that's who Matt was. He literally gave someone the shirt off his back. Wow. So have you given the bags and stuff to his family yet? Not yet. I they know the bags exist. We just haven't worked out the logistics of them picking it up. Do you think that's gonna make Difficult to see those big trees. I, I think it's going to be difficult because I am not in tight communication with them, which warrants a whole nother podcast episode. Mm-hmm. But I, I am not in a place where I can sit with them and go through it together. It's like I've already done it. I've already done my part of going through what I want and now this is really for them to do how they want because I you know even though we're not on the best of terms in this moment I don't want to rob them of you know of something that may be meaningful so I don't it's not you know so I am still thinking of them in that and you know I'm sure they're going to want something so hopefully they'll they'll take what they want and I'm going to tell them to donate the rest and if they don't even want to donate it they can give it back and I'll donate it. Yeah. Well, I know how incredibly hard that whole process was for you, and I'm I'm glad that you were willing to 
share that with our listeners and say, you know, think about when, when and how. And I think that you're right that just one day you say, okay, now is the day I'm going to do this. And it might be sooner, it might be later. There is no right time. It's just when you're ready, right? I think when you know, you know, I think you'll feel it. I, I, I don't, I, my, my best advice is don't pressure yourself one way or another and don't let anyone else pressure you. Like if it, I, I've had actually a situation with one, with one member of Matt's family where they wanted me to give a, a certain couple of items back. And I was like, get out of here. Like it's on my time. It's on, it, it's on my time truly. So it's on, it's on your time when you want to go through their stuff. And just tell him no, and tell him the right. grieving bitch says so. <laughs> right. And who's going to argue with you, Claire? Right. I'll say no for you. Trust me. I would just say that to my patients. Like, if you need me to take care of it, I will. You don't have to worry about it. Because sometimes, no is the right answer. And know the full sentence. Yep. Yeah. Well, thank you, Claire. So much appreciate being able to chat with you. It was great to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Claire. Please stay tuned for the continuing saga of Everyone Dies. And thank you for listening. Like sand through an hourglass, so are the days of our lives. This is Charlie Navarrete, and from Aristophanes, you know him, circa 4450 to 385 BC, I intend to die in a tavern, that the wine be placed near my dying mouth, so that when the choirs of angels come, they may say, God, be merciful to this drinker. And from a pontiff, men are like wine. Some turn to vinegar, but the best improveth age. Mm. And I'm Marianne Matzo, and we'll see you next week. Remember, you can't get fat eating dip. And every day is a gift. This podcast does not provide medical advice. All discussion on this podcast, such as treatments, dosages, outcomes, charts, patient profiles, advice, messages, and any other discussion are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice or treatment. Always seek the advice of your primary care practitioner or other qualified health providers with any questions that you may have regarding your health. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard from this podcast. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. Everyone Dies does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, practitioners, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned in this podcast. Reliance on any information provided in this podcast by persons appearing on this podcast at the invitation of Everyone Dies or by other members is solely at your own risk.